The scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 7, verses 6, verses 36 through 50. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, Simon replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of the debtors will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Gretchen. And I want to I want to say thank you to Melanie uh, for reading that script exactly the way that I had written it. <laughs> what what can I say? But thanks, um, thank you, MPC, session staff, congregation, for welcoming me back in September. Thanks to my wife Betsy and my family for encouraging me prayerfully to consider that this invitation, which was a different kind of call for me, 
might indeed uh, have the imprimatur of the Holy Spirit on it. And thanks especially for your support, Betsy, when that five-hour drive between D.C. and Durham got to be even longer. I want to thank the congregation for your confidence in the decision made by the search committee that brought me here. I want to thank the Lord for allowing us to join together across these nine months, um, a nine months of transition. When you were saying goodbye, as Melanie said, to a, a good, strong leader in David, and as you begin to look expectantly to this next season of NPC's life, as you welcome the Hiltons, I am eager to see what lies ahead for you all, a congregation that now has a claim on my affections as well. Part of what confirmed my sense of the rightness of my call to MPC was the sense that we shared a vision of the Christian gospel, that we shared a vision of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I knew David a little bit. Uh, I knew his reputation. I knew that he was committed to the scriptures as the rule for faith and life. I knew that you all have had a long line of pastors who honored scripture in their preaching and their teaching, and that you sought to order your life together as a congregation around God's word. And I think this is essential work for all of us, not just your pastors. It's essential work for all of us to get to know the scriptures and the doctrines of the Christian faith. Christians ought to be lifelong students of both as challenging as that work can feel sometimes. And yet it does need to be said, I think, that you can have large portions of the scripture memorized. You can master even the more obscure figures and events in Christian history. You can parse out the nuances of the early Trinitarian disagreements. You can describe the different theories of the atonement. You can believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and died on a cross, that he was raised on the third day, and you can believe it earnestly. But there still remains a question, a big question. How do these things that you believe fit into the world that you inhabit? And when the things that you believe don't fit, or seem irrelevant or unpopular? Do you give them up? And there are different ways of giving things up. There is the obvious renunciation, I no longer believe that. But there's a far more subtle and I would say more dangerous form of renunciation. Where we end up putting these things that we believe off to one side in the name of life, quote, in the real world. And so the question to be asked is, do you give them up or do you ask a harder, but I think more important question, which is, am I living in the wrong world? The woman we meet in Luke chapter seven presents us and all the witnesses at this dinner party with that very question. Jesus had a way of provoking us to ask this question. At the very end of our text, everyone, everyone except two, everyone except Jesus and the woman, everyone else is looking at Jesus and at each other, and they are saying, who is this guy? 
They're asking, is he crazy? Or are we? Because if he's crazy or worse, then we need to get rid of him. But if we're crazy, well, then we need to reimagine the way that we understand the world and what it means and how we live in it. Everyone knew who this woman was. Some of the men in the room might not have wanted to admit it, maybe kept in the background as much as they could. Others could tell by the way that she was dressed, by the way that she kept her hair. They knew that she had not been invited to this dinner party in this part of town. All the guests were stunned when she walked in. They didn't know what to do. They probably drew back, unsure if to say anything, what to say. They were unsure of how they should comport themselves, even if they knew or thought they knew what anyone well-trained in the ways of Judaism should think about her. You can hear them murmuring their disapproval in the background. But the woman takes no notice of them. She makes her way as if from another world to the guest of honor. And she pours expensive perfume and even more expensive tears on Jesus' feet. And what does Jesus do? He commends her for her loving act of worship. Meanwhile, Simon the Pharisee, who is the host of the party, objects. His way of understanding the world is some and even undone. Somehow, somehow this shunned woman has become a model to emulate. Simon, by comparison, looks small and smug. Don't you wonder? Don't you wonder what happened to that woman that led her to this extraordinary moment and action? I want to know more, but we're not told more. No doubt she knew her place in the world all too well. She was considered an outcast by the most earnest Jews of the village, a sinner beyond the reach of the means of grace, living in shame, even fear. Hers was a small world, circumscribed by rejection and humiliation, limited to her impersonal usefulness as a prostitute. There must be a backstory. Perhaps she had at some time heard the cadences of Isaiah 61, words that Jesus himself used and are printed on the cover of your bulletin this morning. Perhaps she had heard these words as Jesus talked about his own mission. The Lord has sent me, he said, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom, release to the captives, to provide for those who grieve, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. She must have heard Jesus speaking. Maybe she heard him talk about the parable of the prodigal son. Would she have identified with that story? Maybe she witnessed the healing of somebody who everybody else says was unclean. Whatever it was, the effect 
was stunning. She no longer imagined herself as an outcast, unworthy of love or forgiveness. Instead, she began to see herself in a transformed way as part of a larger story that only Jesus could have told, that only Jesus could have guaranteed was true. And the result? Set free from fear of public humiliation or retaliation, no longer defined by her shame, but now a participant in a story of forgiveness and new creation and joy. Everyone around her saw a discredited woman in violation of social convention and God's law. But she, she only saw the eyes of the one who may as well have raised her from the dead. Something opened her imagination to a different way of seeing the world and her place in it. And whatever that is, we need. She began to see herself as part of a new story. Christians call this conversion. It's not just a matter, however, of changing your behavior and keeping a few rules or stopping doing some things or starting to do some things. Conversion is more than just adding things to the way you think, things that you believe, although these things certainly matter. But it's more than that. Conversion involves, at its heart, a conversion of the imagination. Why is that so important? It's because human beings are uniquely among God's creatures, meaning makers. We're always looking to hold things together to make sense of things. And it is the imagination that allows us to grasp the whole, the meaning, the pattern in what we perceive, to draw the lines that connect the dots, to glimpse the pattern that suddenly makes sense of being. The imagination can be manipulated, it can be misled, it can be abused or misused, but it is powerful. And every one of us is shaped by our imaginations. Why do you think companies spend $7 million for 30 seconds of Super Bowl ad space so that Peyton Manning can convince you that you aren't living unless you are eating Lay's potato chips. It's because Frito-Lay knows the power of the imagination, and that in turn encourages and shapes desire and habit. And everybody knows that nobody can eat just one. Or more seriously, Mr. Putin can appeal to the imagination of a nation to spin a web of nationalistic lies which will lead to how much misery and destruction. He's trying to write a story that can manipulate the details of his country's history to his own autocratic ends. In this case, imagination is in service to something demonic. And it's been this way since the beginning of the human race when the serpent told an alternate story to Adam and Eve 
that purported to explain really the commands of God as actions of a tyrant and not of a God who loved his creation and whose laws were in service to their flourishing. In truth, you can't really believe what you haven't first been able to imagine. I think I said this during the Lenten series when we were reading The Great Divorce together. The imagination is so important, it actually provides the foundation for what it then is possible for you to believe. You cannot believe what you can't first imagine. It is the imagination that interprets and empowers the facts and events of your life that either confirm or contradict what you think you believe. And so if you find yourself on the edge of doubt about the Christian faith, interrogate the things that are shaping your imagination first before you decide to walk away. Because you might find there something devious is actually claiming you in a way that you did not understand. So Simon the Pharisee in the story that Gretchen read for us a little while ago could not believe that Jesus was commending the woman when he looked at her and saw only someone who is beyond the reach of God. His was a failure of imagination. He was unable to see the crucial link between forgiveness and gratitude and love. Jesus used the two stories, the story of the two debtors, to get behind his rational defenses to challenge his unexamined assumptions about how God works. You can see that the real battleground for the soul is in the capacity for human beings, how we put together the details of our life in a way that has meaning. It is the imagination that allows you to adjudicate your desires, to decide which ones are good, which ones are wrong, which ones are true, which ones are beautiful, which ones are not. It's the imagination that allows you to see the possibilities of things. And so it is with the beliefs of the Christian faith. So when you stand at the crib of a Bethlehem baby of Jewish descent, do you see a birth of a peasant boy? Or do you see in him a doorway opening to a cosmos of hope and redemption? When you stand before this Roman cross on which hangs that same Bethlehem baby, now a man, do you see a man who was a dreamer but ultimately a fool? Or do you see a man whose death will open a portal to resurrection life and who will conquer every enemy? Has your imagination been shaped in such a way as to even allow you to consider these possibilities because you can't believe what you haven't first been able to imagine. It's the imagination that frames the possibilities and the power of belief. What is shaping your imagination in your own life today? When you read the newspaper, when you scour the internet, when you read the scriptures, what is shaping your imagination? We have to attend to this. How to do that? 
if our goal is Christian maturity, to love God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, and neighbor as ourselves? Well, let me give you a couple of very brief suggestions. First, you need to get to know the elements of the story found in the scriptures. And while it should be common sense, but I fear it's not, be careful what you take in. You are not neutral ground. You are being shaped every moment by the things you take on board into your mind and heart. Be careful what you take in. Have you heard the phrase, I can't unsee that, I wish I could? We are saturated with images, and they stick to us. They have a formative power over us, telling us what is actually possible to believe and to live. And then secondly, if, if you have children, let me invite you parents to make a pain of yourself to your kids by helping them to see what's really going on in the media that they are taking in every day too. They're taking it in. And I said, I would often say to my own children, if we're watching something, I would, I would say something like, see those lovely Clydesdale horses in that ad? And those black labs, not a lot. I was not a lot of fun to watch TV with. <laughs> but positively, take advantage of the liturgical gifts found in the weekly corporate worship life of this congregation. I think it really matters that we are face-to-face -face on Sunday mornings. And I want to issue an invitation to those folks who are remaining apart from us only for convenience sake. We understand that there are lots of reasons why people stay at home. But we need you here if you can be here. Because this is the laboratory where we are being asked to fire the imagination for a way of life that is going to be encouraged nowhere else in the world. The stakes are high. Take advantage of the liturgical gifts that are found in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yes, they can be thoughtless rituals, sentimentality when a baby's baptized, oh, what a cute baby. Or they can be what the scriptures tell us they are, dying, baptism, to now going down into the waters, dying to self, rising to new life in Christ or recognizing at the table our deep dependence together on God for our ongoing sustenance that we need in order to be faithful in this time or in any time. Or take another example. Take your bulletin home with you today and pray through the confession slowly. We read it together. We didn't give you much time to think about it. Take the confession home. But this time, pause over each phrase, asking the Holy Spirit to help you name particulars because change happens in the particulars, in the naming of the particulars. Preachers can talk about all kinds of generalities, but if I start meddling, that's when you want to fire me. It's in the particulars that transformation happens, where we name the things that would enslave us and are willing to enter into the battle to see them conquered by the grace of God. Help the Holy Spirit to ask you to name particulars. Forgive our careless attitudes toward your purposes, we prayed.
Well, what are God's purposes? Or take that wonderful last line, help us to change so that we may desire what is good. What does God say is good? That we might love what you love. What does God love? That we may do what you command. What do you command of me, Lord? These kinds of reflections will take all that you have learned about the scriptures over the years of your life and put them to work shaping that crucial web of meaning that tells the real story of your life. The scripturally soaked imagination. It can be the provocateur that leads us to question our old commitments. It can be the engine that powers us to faithfulness in an increasingly alien and perhaps often hostile world. In The Lord of the Rings, Sam and Frodo, if you know the story, find themselves in a pretty tight spot. Things don't look good. And they reflect on how they came to be in the fix they were in. And Sam says to Frodo, Mr. Frodo, I wonder what kind of story we've fallen into. That's the right question. What story are we in? For our woman at the dinner party, she turned in the script that she had been given, the script of shame, of grief, of loss, and humiliation. She turned that script in, and she embraced a very different one, one in which she was known, but loved, forgiven, and then commissioned. What story do you inhabit? You didn't really expect me to come to the end of my time with you all and not mention C.S. Lewis. But Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see the sun, but because by it I see everything else. You see, it was the story, it was the true story of Jesus Christ that made sense of the rest of his life, the joys and the sorrows, the richness and its deficits. And this morning, I want to say to you, friends, that there is no other story, no story of potential liberation or freedom or authenticity, no story of financial gain or political power that offers us the kind of hope that we encounter in the story, the true story, of Jesus Christ. What's yours? Let's pray. How grateful we are, Lord, that you bear with us in our failures to understand and to imagine. How grateful we are, Lord, that you don't give up on us, that you continue to pursue us, that it's never too late to pause, to consider, to turn, to step toward you instead of away from you. May that be the case this morning, Lord, as we come to the table. May this be our altar call. We want to live by your story. We want to live into the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of the life that is on offer to us in Jesus Christ. May it be so. May it be so for this congregation, for your people, wherever they are gathered. We give your Holy Spirit full reign and full permission 
to walk with us into the future and to make of us what you would have us be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.